If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 33. Psalm 33. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him and ask for His help, His assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this book before us that has been preserved through the years, through the decades, through the centuries, through the millennia, for your people. Father, it indeed is a good map, helping us to know who you are, who we are, what you call us to do. But Father, we also need a compass. So Father, would you be pleased to pour out your Holy Spirit who gives light to our darkness. Father, May these not just be words on a page, but may they be the living and active word that your word is. So, Father, may your spirit and your word have their way with all of us today. Change us, Father. Enable us to leave today different and more like Jesus than we arrived, than when we arrived. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. I'd like to draw our attention to page 6 of the Order of Worship, the Bulletin. Every now and then I've included this uh, short article on why Christians sing, and I thought it was very appropriate for the theme of Psalm 33, and I want to direct your attention to the end where we read this. Worshiping God in song isn't simply a nice idea or only for musically gifted people. The question is not, has God given me a voice, but has God given me a song? If you trust in the finished work of Christ, the answer is clear. Yes. Yes, you have a song to sing. Well, in the Psalms, we are given 150 songs to sing. And as that uh, quote by John Calvin in his preface to the commentary on the Psalms that we find, uh, I guess, on the previous page, um, these Psalms help us both give words to praise God, to pray to Him, but also uh, uh, words to express any and every emotion. The Psalms, as I hope you're seeing, is utterly realistic. There's hardly any emotion that we haven't already touched on just this summer. Indeed, it's an anatomy of the soul, opening us up and also helping to close us up. Well, Psalm 33, you'll notice there's no superscription. Uh, there's no um, like title um, there, there's, the author is unknown, but likely, as I said in the preparing for worship uh, email, it's connected to the previous psalm, Psalm 32, kind of as a commentary on the whole last verse of Psalm 32. And indeed, you see the closing exhortation, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Actually, the next uh Chapter, chapter 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You see, that is almost repeated at the beginning of Psalm 
33. The ending exhortation of Psalm 32 and the beginning exhortation of Psalm 33 are almost one and the same. Now even though we've been given yet another song to sing, our hearts, if we're honest, are often out of tune and need to be tuned again, need to be retuned. Charles Spurgeon, in looking at the Psalms, wrote this, David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He begins many of his psalms sighing and ends them singing. Well, we don't know if David wrote this. Uh, Most likely, I believe he did as it comes on the heels of Psalm 32. And David here, though, doesn't begin with sighing. He begins with singing. This hymn, this psalm, is going to give us good reasons to sing, even if we don't feel like singing. Because there are many reasons why my heart and your heart may be out of tune with God and His Word. Could it be the cares of this world? Could it be the deceitfulness of riches? Could it be the desires of For other things. Ask yourself right now. Is my heart to the best of my knowledge. In tune with God's word. Or is it singing another tune. It's a good question to ask us often. But if you find. Your heart out of tune. If you find your heart in need of being retuned. Tuned again. I've got good news. Really good news, because Psalm 33 will help us retune our hearts to sing Thy grace as we opened up with Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. This is a hymn of praise to God for who He is and for what He does. And so let's unpack and explore Psalm 33 for the next few minutes. First, notice the call to sing Here are verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Well, to whom is this psalm addressed? Look again at verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. This psalm is addressed to a particular kind of person. The righteous person, the upright person. Well, who who is righteous and who is upright? Well, the answer is found in Psalm 32, as we saw last week. It's the forgiven Those people have a righteousness not in and of themselves, but from outside themselves. They have been made to stand not in their own strength upright, but in the strength of another. You see that in verse 1 of 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then we saw, again, that pivotal verse 5 where there's confession and there's immediate forgiveness. And that's why Psalm 32 can end with this exhortation, this command, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, 
and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Because you have been forgiven. You see, praise is fitting. It's fitting to God for who He is. He's worthy. It's fitting to us because we were created for it. We were created not for praise in general, but we were created to worship something or someone supremely. Well, what are the upright and righteous told to do? Note that we are to be instructed, we are to be reminded to worship. Look at the verbs in the first few verses. Shout for joy. Give thanks. Make melody. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully. Just a whole bunch of words and phrases heaped together to show the exuberance of praise and worship to God. It's the first mention in the Psalter of instruments being used to accompany singing. But we see that, of course, elsewhere. Now we heard, sing to Him a new song. This is the first time we hear that expression, those words in the Psalter. We'll hear it later in Psalms 95 and 96. We see it in Isaiah and we also see it in Revelation. A new song. It's not the idea of a newly composed song, but rather it's the idea being expressed here of a song that's being freshly responded to. It's when a new truth is grasped or an old truth is freshly appreciated. Remember, Paul says to the Corinthian church, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. We, we see Paul call the Roman church to do what? To walk in newness of life. Sing this new song. This fresh appreciation of who God is and, and what He's done. Now singing to God and praising God is not without effect, is it? You see, praising God Singing, in particular, it, it changes us. It clarifies our vision. It shifts our perspective. It strengthens our heart. It produces joy. Indeed, as we just sang, sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. My friends, what you and I sing is not neutral. It changes us one way or another. And that's why, by God's grace, we will always be singing God's Word. Singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs that are faithful to what God's Word teaches and proclaims. Why? Because it reinforces over and over and over again the truth. Think about your favorite hymn. You know the words. They drill down deep to our very hearts. What we sing is not neutral. It has an influence, and I hope we will see this psalm has a great influence on us. Well, Psalm 33 begins with an offering of praise, bringing glory and honor to God. It would be enough if you and I were just commanded to praise God, just ordered to sing that alone in and of itself, is enough. I mean, think about the Roman centurion understanding authority in his interactions with Jesus. 
He knew that all Jesus needed to do was say, and that was enough. But look how gracious God is. He, he, what we have in Psalm 33 are three good reasons to sing, three good motivations for praising the Lord. The, the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and finally, the watchful eye of the Lord. Indeed, not only are we to praise the God in a multitude of ways, look at verses 1 through 3, but we're also to praise God for a multitude of reasons. The calls for singing, a calls for praise is verses 4 through 19. First, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Join with me as I read verses 4 through 9. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The word of the Lord, we see it in verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright. Here you see displayed the character of God, the character of the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God is upright and faithful. Also, His Word is upright and faithful. Why? It's a revelation of who He is. Not only do we see the character of God made known, but we see the competency of God made known also. He spoke and He commanded. And what happened? He created. You read through the first couple of chapters in Genesis. God created by the Word of his power. He said, let there be and there was. This, as the first readers and singers of this psalm would immediately go back to the opening of Scripture in God's creative word. And notice the response to the revelation of the word of God. We see that in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Worship the Lord, respect the Lord, be in awe of the Lord. God's Word is creative. And knowing that God's Word is creative helps tune our hearts to sing. We move now to the will of the Lord. Join with me as I continue reading verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His inheritance. The God who creates is also the God who governs. The God who rules. Because His counsel, the counsel of the Lord, stands forever. Paul, in writing to the Ephesian church, was able to say, and Paul knew the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Do you remember the time when King Nebuchadnezzar resisted God? 
rebelled against God. He was humbled. And then he was restored. Here's what we read in Daniel chapter 4 verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Sounds like the opening of Psalm 33. Well, why? Why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, listen to how he continues. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In verses 10 through 12, we see the Lord stopping the will of man, as it were, and ensuring that his will is done. Today is a day and age of anxiety, not only in our society out there, but most likely at times in your own heart. So are you confident that the Lord rules the day? Are you confident that God's will will be done? Because we see in these few verses that God's will is triumphant, and knowing that God's will is supreme helps us tune our hearts to sing. But then the psalmist continues as we see the watchful eye of the Lord. We've seen the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and now he goes on to speak of the watchful eye of the Lord. Beginning in verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Well, even though God is enthroned on high, the psalmist makes it clear he is not distant. No, his gaze is overall, it's discerning. He looks down, he sees, he looks out, he observes. And what is the main focus of God's observation? What is he looking at? He's looking at people and the object of their trust. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. The king is not saved by what? His great army. A warrior is not delivered by what? His great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. And yet, what do people do? What do you and I do? We trust in our great army. Well, what's that to you? What is your great army that you might be trusting in right now? Are you trusting in your great strength? Some of you are really, really smart. 
Others of you are really, really gifted and skilled. Others of you may have financial resources and resources and talent. Is that the object of your trust? It's interesting, the psalmist says, great army, great strength, great might. And yet, there's no salvation, there's no deliverance, and there's no rescue. Despite the greatness of what you can see with your eyes. Or the greatness which you think may reside in you. You see, a great army, a great strength, and a great might, as God's people learned and had to relearn over and over again, is no match for God's people. And interestingly, at Fairhaven Rescue Mission, uh, as we were walking out the door, uh, one of the gentlemen we were talking to brought up Gideon and the fact that Gideons had to be reduced finally to just a few men to show that salvation was of the Lord. The watchful eye of the Lord, the gaze of God. When you and I become aware of God's gaze, two responses. Either it's greatly comforting or it's greatly terrifying. What is it to you right now? Is knowing that God's eye is all-seeing, that nothing escapes His vision, is that a great comfort to you? Or is it a great terror to you? But knowing that God's benevolent eye is on those who fear Him. Verse 18, those who fear Him. That helps tune our hearts to sing. Now before we move on, a few words about something that occurred to me couple of days ago. Someone recently asked me, are we a confessional church? And it was easy to answer that question. Yes, we do have a confession of faith that both summarizes and organizing what we believe the scriptures teach. Some of you may be thinking, wow, this sounds an awful lot like the Westminster Confession of Faith. This sounds like how the Westminster Shorter Catechism is organized, right? The Word of God. And then the decrees of God. And how does God execute His decrees? Through the works of creation and providence. And you see that in Psalm 33. God's Word and His works. His creative work. His providential and sovereign work. It helps us. It's a tool to help us grasp the Scriptures. And we see what a great blessing and benefit a confession is as it helps us summarize and organize God's Word. Well, Psalm 33 begins and ends with expressions of great gladness. It begins loudly, so to speak, and it ends quietly with confidence that comes as a result of singing this song. The psalmist ends with the hope of God's continued care and protection for which the psalm has been praising Him all along. Join with me as I read verses 20 through 22, the confidence that comes from a song. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us 
even as we hope in you. Here's the response to or the effect of praise, of singing. In verses 20 and 21, there's a confession of faith in the Lord who is our help and our shield. Hearts are glad because they trust in the Lord. They don't trust in an army. They don't trust in their own strength. They don't trust in their own might. Hearts are glad because their trust is found in the only object that can handle it, that can carry the freight. When you trust in the Lord as your help and your shield, as we see in verse 20, anxieties that are often wrapped around our hearts, anxieties and fears and worries and cares that somehow are gripping our heart, they're loosened. They're loosened. Listen again. Our soul waits for the Lord, for He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him, because why? We trust in His holy name. Can you make that confession of faith? You may have made it in the past, I trust the Lord. Can you make it today? Remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. Every day. But in verse 22, we have a petition of faith in the Lord in whom we trust and are glad. Verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This hope is patient, confident, buoyant, informed, and focused. Not not on itself and not on the gift, but, but on the giver. Can you, after making this confession of faith, can you make this petition of faith? Maybe you did in the past. Can you do it today? Today. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. See all the commands, shout for joy, give thanks, make melody, sing to Him. All plural. You all. You guys. You, plural. That's kind of hard to see there. But look with me at the last three verses. The plural, the corporate is everywhere. Our soul, our help, our shield, our heart, we trust, us, we hope. That is easily seen, isn't it? But oh, not so easily welcomed and embraced. Why? I think it's because most of us, if we're honest, we like to fly solo. We like to do it in the words of a child learning to speak. I do it myself. But my friends, this is a song for God's people. This is a song for the church, the household of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. My friends, it's not just us individually, although 
we individually contribute to it, of course. But it's our soul that waits because He is our help, our shield. It's interesting, the psalmist speaks of the unity of heart of God's people. Our heart, because we trust in Him. My friends, if it not had been for you all, I would still not be here. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is you've heard it before. We need one another. We come alongside one another. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We rebuke one another. We warn one another. Oh, my friends, do you not see it here? The blessing, the blessing of the corporate aspect of faith. Because generally speaking, when somebody's faith is weak here, others are strong and they come alongside. And when we receive the comfort that God gives us, what can we do? As Paul writes to the Corinthian church at the beginning of his second letter, we comfort others with the same comfort we have received. Psalm 33 began with the demand to praise God. And it gave several reasons why God is worthy of praise. His word, His will, and His watchful eye. But it ends with a declaration of trust in the Lord. Well, let's return to where we begin. Who is called to sing? Okay, let me put it differently. Who can sing, right? Who can sing? Only those who have been forgiven. That's the qualification. Christians, the, the song begins with the solution to our biggest problem, with the provision for our biggest and greatest need. And what, what do those who have been forgiven sing about the most? Well, look with me at the song's refrain. Did you pick it up? Three times in verses 5 and 18 and 22, we read of the steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verse 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him and those who hope in what? In His steadfast love. And then in the last verse, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. You see, the steadfast love of the Lord has been a common refrain that ties the whole psalm together. That's what they sing about, the steadfast love of the Lord. But who? Who do those who have been forgiven sing about most often? Well, the steadfast love of the Lord is found in the one and in the only one who delivers our soul from death. Do you see that deliverance? That He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. My friends, Jesus Christ is the fullness of the steadfast love 
of the Lord. Think about Jesus' ministry of come to me, find rest in me, come to me and I will never cast you out. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. My friends, if anything is true today, we are living in a world that does not display a whole lot of steadfast love. And yet in Christ and in Christ alone is love that is strong and love that is steady. Committed love to begin in us and to finish with us. You know, these days, everybody wants to say what love is, right? This is love. Well, God's Word declares it pretty clearly. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, as John writes in his first letter. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, when we uncover our sin, when we no longer cover it up, when we confess it and repent and ask forgiveness, what does God do? He covers it with the blood of the only one who through His life, death, and resurrection delivers us from death. Oh, my friends, what a great reminder that Christians and only Christians are given the ability and the desire to sing a song, a song that will never grow old, a song that will never end. May God be pleased to continue to tune our hearts to sing that song. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that have been before us, words that help us express who you are and what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do for your people. And we thank you, Father, that this points us to the one object of trust that is strong enough, that is mighty enough, that is powerful enough to save the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, forgive us for how our trust has been in others and in other things. Would you return our trust to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.